0: So we're starting this new series on the book of James, and I've been really looking forward to this series. James is one of the grittiest, um, most relevant books in the New Testament. It's so easy to apply to our lives, and I, it's only a short book uh, written, of course, in the form of a letter, and I hope that you'll read it several times over while we're going through this series. Uh, I heard James described as a beautifully crafted punch in the guts for those who want to follow Jesus. Uh, It's a seriously challenging book. Uh, James was actually the brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. How cool is that? And he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem until he was murdered by the scribes and the Pharisees. And historical sources outside of the new testament tell us that he was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple uh, the fall didn't quite kill him so they proceeded to stone him and beat him to death with clubs uh, so a really brutal uh, end for james uh, so james led the church at a time of severe persecution i think we can see that uh, from what he faced at the end of his life but it was also a time of famine scarcity and poverty So in verse two, where James says, whenever you face trials of many kinds, he's speaking from personal experience, and he's speaking from the experience of the Jerusalem church. They were really doing it tough. And James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. In other words, all the Christians who had been driven away, dispersed all over the place because of this persecution. And uh, you'll know that Paul usually, or always in fact, addresses his letters to a particular church or a particular person, whereas James addresses his letter to all Christians everywhere. And in a nutshell, this letter is about true faith, what it means to have true faith, especially in the context of hardship and persecution, what James describes as trials everyone will face trials. I can't believe there's anyone here who hasn't been through some really tough situations. Grief, ill health, financial difficulties, relationship breakdown, stress, and so on. And of course, at the moment, we're in the midst of this coronavirus. The fallout from that could cause any of those things, That I've just mentioned actually. So we're in a time maybe of uh, heightened stress and anxiety. But the fact is we've all experienced trials of many kinds. So where do these trials come from? Well, sometimes they're the result of our own bad choices, our sin. Human beings are quite adept at messing things up for themselves. Other times they're due to circumstances that are completely beyond our control. We live in a fallen, broken world, and we get caught up in the mess of that. And I think there are occasions when God sends us trials to shape us and to mold us, Uh, but that doesn't mean that God is responsible for every bad thing that happens to us. God can work through tough situations, but that doesn't mean that God has uh, necessarily caused that situation in the first place. But wherever the trials come from... The one thing we usually don't do is consider it pure joy to be facing them. I mean, why would anyone do that? Well, according to James, who faced his fair share of trials, we should meet our trials with joy because they test our faith in a way that produces perseverance. And if we persevere in our faith, says James, we become mature and complete, not lacking anything. James talks about the testing of our faith, and the word that he uses for testing is the same word that would be used of a silversmith who tested the quality of the silver. So the silver would be heated to a very high temperature, and at a certain temperature, all the impurities, what's known as the dross, would separate from the silver and come up to the surface. And so you'd have this kind of this dark layer of dross on the surface and the silversmith would, would scrape that off the top. And that process would be repeated until the silver was pure. And the way the silversmith would know if the silver was pure is if he could see his face in it. And when we face the hardships of our lives and the, and, uh, the dross comes to the surface, God is able to deal with that. It will allow him to. It will work incorporation with his holy spirit he can deal with that he can scrape it off and because of that process which is often quite painful we begin to reflect the image of god more clearly and that is actually what we've been created for to reflect god's goodness and glory out into the world we've all seen the dross come to the surface in our lives haven't we And it's usually when we're really up against it, when we're facing really tough situations. I mean, the easier life is, the easier it is to be kind and patient and measured. But when things get hard, when we face trials and stress, well, that's when we start struggling to hold it together. When we're unwell, it becomes easy to be miserable, self-piteous, pessimistic. When we're stressed, we can become snappy and overly critical of others. When we're tired, we can become more susceptible to temptation. Uh, I often say, uh, more often than not to men, but um, you know, don't go on the Internet late at night, when you're tired and you're stressed, because you just open yourself up to temptation. So our trials can bring the dross up to the surface in our lives. Uh, But even the most positive phases of our lives can have that effect. Uh, Marriage, for example. Marriage is a wonderful thing, but it can be really hard. It's like having a mirror held up to us, and all of a sudden we realize just how selfish we are. Or looking after children. Again, it's a wonderful uh, experience, but it can test your patience to the limit. So yes, uh, trials, but also situations that we wouldn't necessarily describe as trials. Maybe situations that just demand a little bit more of us can bring stuff to the surface. And so they're an opportunity to be changed and transformed. However, if you, uh, did the whole homeschooling thing during the lockdown period, that definitely counts as a trial. You can, you can have that in the bag. Uh, when i worked for holy trinity brompton as big church in central london uh, there was a maintenance team and i think there were seven or eight guys on the team they're all catholic none of them had fewer than five children uh, many of them were into double digits with their children and do you know what they're the most uh, chilled out group of blokes i've ever met met you'd think the opposite i can't speak for their wives i didn't meet their wives but uh, but they were super chilled out and it occurred to me that having all those children, which could in some senses be quite stressful, it just given them this ability to cope with virtually anything. But let's bring it back to some of the hard, difficult, unpleasant situations uh, that many of us have faced and will face in life. When we fo- face those situations, we are to recognize that it's an opportunity for God to change us for the better. And so in James' words, we're to consider it pure joy. Now, if you're in the midst of a very tough situation, this is really hard to hear. When you're going through the mill, you don't want someone telling you to rejoice. It's the last thing that you feel like doing. But hear me out. The situation that you're in, the trial that you're going through. It is what it is. There may be things that you can do to alleviate it. There may be nothing you can do. It might be completely beyond your control. But when it comes to your perspective, the way that you face that trial, the way that you meet it, well, then you do have a choice. You do have a choice. You can get angry. You can blame God. You can walk away from God altogether. Or you can say, right, this is not what I wanted, but this is an opportunity to trust God. This is an opportunity to keep trusting in God's goodness in spite of this situation. When we face trials in terms of our faith, we use it or we lose it. We turn to God or we turn away from God. We always have that choice. And ultimately, it's a choice between triumph and disaster. Choosing to trust God in spite of the circumstances doesn't mean that we're immune to negative emotions or depression or feeling like we want to give up. But it does mean that we hold on to Christ no matter what. And we keep coming back to that center line. God is good. He loves me. He cares for me. And if I put my trust in him, he will shape my character for the better and help me to become more like Jesus. And I've seen people in this church do that. I've seen people do the opposite. Let's face it, when everything is going perfectly well, it's not all that hard to trust God. But in one sense, it's not really necessary either. I mean, it is, but our perspective is, well, what do we need God for? And that's when we start to put our trust in other things in our own abilities, our other relationships, in our job if it's secure, our, our, our wealth or our pension plan, whatever it is. Self-reliance is one of the biggest obstacles to faith in the Western world. It's when we face trials, serious trials, that we need the kind of faith that produces perseverance. And perseverance leads to being mature and complete not lacking anything. And that word that's used there, uh, complete, literally means perfect or wholeness. Wholeness is when there are no inconsistencies in the way we live, when we live lives of integrity, where what we say and do, our words and our actions, match what we claim to believe and what we've learned through Jesus. But of course, James understands that we're all pretty messed up. And there are massive inconsistencies in our character. But God is in the business of making us whole. And it will allow him to. He will keep moving us in the direction of wholeness. It's a lifelong process. We don't want to be the kind of people who give up and fall away at the first sign of difficulty or trouble. Jesus warned about that, didn't he? The parable of the sower. You remember the seed that fell on the rocky ground. It sprang up quickly, but it had no root, and so it soon withered in the sun. And a lot of people receive the good news of Jesus with joy, but when they face the trials and the persecutions and the troubles of life, the faith doesn't hold them, and it withers away. But it's inconsistent, isn't it? It's inconsistent because we know We know that Christians experience persecution, illness, grief, sorrow. We know it. So we can't say, well, it's okay for other Christians to experience those things. It's okay for the church in northern Nigeria to, you know, to be risking their lives every time they go to church. It's okay for, you know, people in developing countries to be really, really poor, you know, Christians. That's okay. I'm all right with that. But I'm not going to keep trusting God if he allows those things to happen to me? That position is inconsistent. It's illogical. It makes no sense. We don't want to be fair-weather Christians, because that's not true faith. We must always remember that God wants to make us whole. We live in a fallen, broken world. We're all tainted by sin, and God wants to clean us up people ask why does God allow so much suffering but but let's be clear God has not introduced suffering into the world but he does allow it because he's on a mission to make us whole and that's one of the ways that he does so by working through our suffering let's think about humanity collectively for a moment human beings have rebelled uh, rebelled against God so what is God to do should God keep smoothing over the effects of that rebellion so that human beings never experience the consequences of their own sin? Well, there's two problems with that. The, the first problem is to do with justice. I mean, we all accept that criminals should face the consequences of their actions. I mean, we wouldn't think very much of a judge who kept letting people off. You know, they're letting off rapists and murderers, to let them go, uh, no, no, absolutely no consequences every time. We'd say, well, what kind of a judge is that? But God is a just judge. He, he can't just ignore the fact that the world is sin uh, full of sin. The other problem is to do with restoration. How could such an approach possibly lead to us being restored? How could it possibly lead to us being made whole? Imagine a child who uh, always vented their anger by smashing up their room and everything in it. And the parents, every time that happened, they just... Replaced all the uh, broken items with brand new ones. Nothing else was said. How would that child ever learn to control their temper? Human beings have rebelled. The world is in a mess. That's not what God wanted. That's not what God wanted. But God is working amongst the mess and the pain and the brokenness to bring healing and wholeness. Many of the trials that people face are not their fault. But they're not God's fault either. They're the result of living in a broken world. But we can trust in the absolute goodness of God. God has a plan to bring healing and restoration to the whole of creation. And if we'll allow him to, it will work with the Holy Spirit, walk in step with the Spirit, God will work in us as individuals to that same end, to bring wholeness and healing. God doesn't just want to make you happy. God wants to make you holy. God wants to make you complete, perfect, whole. Verse 4 says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And in verse 5, James tells us that if we don't have the wisdom to know that trials can be for our benefit, then we just have to ask for it. We pray for it, and God will give us that understanding. Listen, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But then he goes on to say, we must ask without doubting. Verse Verses 6 to 8 says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And that can sound a bit harsh because a certain amount of doubt is normal, I would say. Do you remember in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is approached by a man whose son is possessed by an evil spirit. And the man describes his son's condition to Jesus. And then he says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus replies, if you can. In other words, are you doubting that I can do this? Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And then the boy's father replies, and this is the important bit. He says, I do believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. And I think that's probably where most of us are. We believe... But we need the help of the Holy Spirit to get us all the way over the line with our belief. Faith wouldn't be faith if doubt was completely removed from the equation, by definition. But when James talks about the person who doubts, I don't think he's talking about the believer who needs help with their belief. He's talking about the person who's clutching at straws, perhaps praying as an absolute last resort. Maybe placing a modicum of trust in God, but placing a whole load more trust in everything else. The person who prays for wisdom, but doesn't really expect to receive it, or doesn't deep down want to receive it. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, because deep down, they don't want to. They don't want to receive Now, James is uh, quite influenced by the book of Proverbs. And we see, if if you read James carefully, you'll you'll see sort of Proverbs, the influence of it uh, throughout the book. Uh, But Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in this case, fear means to respect, to revere, to be in awe of. It's not fear in in terms of terror, but but fear, just the, the, the awesomeness of God and being aware of that. And the person who doesn't truly fear the Lord will not receive wisdom when he asks for it because he lacks the very foundation of wisdom, that 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 awesome sense of, of God's presence. But if you know and love Jesus and you're going through a trial and you ask the Lord to reveal to you how this tragic, Terrible, difficult situation, whatever it might be, if you ask the Lord to reveal how this can possibly be of any benefit, he will do. And he will help you to understand and to experience his hand on your life in the midst of your pain and your suffering. Charles Spurgeon once said, our worst things are often our best things. And we say, well, how can that be? But the principles of God's kingdom are the opposite of the principles of the world. And we see that very clearly in verses 9 and 10. Believers in humble circumstances, the poor in other words, ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. Do you see, It's what is the norm in our society It's just been reversed there. It's not uncommon for people to think oh I've only I had enough money I've only I had a bit more money everything would be okay as if money solves everything I wonder how many of us have ever daydreamed about having a lot of money and how wonderful that would be no need to raise your hands I think it's probably most of us at some point or other but being rich is spiritually very dangerous Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, although he did also add, all things are possible with God. But I think for the same reasons, the opposite can be true. People who are poor have nothing else to rely on, and so they're much more likely to rely on God. And if your poverty causes you to rely completely on God, then that can only be regarded as a blessing. Life is good. Life is good, but it can be very hard. But here's what James says. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the one who perseveres. I remember when I was in training for the Royal Marines, uh, I remember one of the instructors saying, you're not going to like this but it's gonna make you better soldiers. Uh, that was right before we were put up to our necks in freezing cold water with all our kit uh, at the beginning of a five-day exercise. Now, no one likes being cold and wet for five days, but if you can get used to working in those conditions, it will make you a better soldier. But whatever hardship we faced in training, and it could be pretty grueling, we always knew that there was a, a purpose, there's a reason behind it, and that made it so much easier to bear. And when we face trials in life, Whatever they are, we know that there's a purpose, that there can be some good that comes out of this. Trials are the means by which we become more like Jesus. And to think of Jesus' life, what he suffered, what he experienced, how he dealt with it. Trials are the means by which we become more like Jesus. Not only that, but there's a goal. There's an end to it all. And what a glorious end it is, the crown of life. Eternal life with Jesus in a renewed and restored creation. Again, uh, when I was going through training, I remember doing the last of the commando tests, the 30-miler. It's 30 miles across very arduous terrain. A lot of it was bogs and marshes, carrying 40 pounds plus a kit. The weather conditions were atrocious. We'd come off a 10-day Final exercise, we'd done our three de- three first commando tests, so our feet were blistered, our bodies were battered and bruised and fatigued before we even started. But at the end of the 30-miler, you get awarded your green berry, your, your green lid. That's the goal, that's the prize. Many of us had dreamed of this since we were small boys. And I can remember being on that 30-miler, and every part of your body is screaming at you. And, but you're prepared to put up with any amount of pain and discomfort to win the prize, to earn the green lid. That's what kept us going. And yet, you know, it's an achievement, but at the end of the day, the prize was just a bit of green cloth, a bit of kudos. By contrast, the prize that we're moving towards, And I say moving towards, not working towards, because we receive this prize, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done for us. But we persevere towards the prize, enduring all trials and tribulation, because we know that nothing can compare to the crown of life. Nothing can compare. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Those who make it through this test, those who persevere with their faith, trusting in God's goodness, no matter what the circumstances, according to James, those are the ones who love Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we... We recognize that in one sense we don't face the trials here in Australia that that people maybe face in the developed world or uh, developing world, I should say, or, or trials like the Jerusalem church face severe persecution. Uh, nevertheless, we still do face trials. We face pain and difficulty and grief and sorrow and hardship. Life can be tough. But we recognize, Lord, that you want to shape us, you want to mold us, you want to make us whole. And we pray that we'll continue to engage with you in this process so that over the course of our lives, no matter what gets thrown at us, we will draw ever closer to you. We'll be even more like Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you will fit us for your kingdom and help us to be the people that you've called us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.